Welcome to the Man Talk Show. I'm Connor Beaton. This podcast brings together some of the best thought leaders, teachers, and extraordinary individuals to help teach and mentor you on how to be a top performer in life, love, and business. Joining me today is Mr. Scott Johnston. He has worked in finance for over 35 years. He's a Yale graduate who taught classes there. And as an undergraduate, he was very involved in campus fraternity and social life and uh, self-published the complete book of beer drinking games. It's not even it's not even a joke. It's a real thing. The complete book of beer drinking games just after graduation. It has uh, gone to sell over a million copies uh, before Yale. It's shocking, by the way. <laughs> That's not what we're going to talk about, by the way, on the podcast. Uh, before Yale, Johnston went to uh, Buckley School in New York uh, and a boarding school at Milton Academy. He currently lives in Bedford, New York with his wife and three children. So what we are going to talk about today on this episode is uh, PC culture and campus life. So Scott has written a book called Campus Land. And the whole concept of Campus Land is uh, talking about how PC culture has impacted um, university campuses around North America. And the book is interesting because it's fictional. It's a completely uh, fictional story. However, as he discloses in the episode, the, uh, the all the stories that are in the book are actually real-life scenarios. Um, so really, really interesting to see how he pieced this all together. But we talk about a few things uh, on this episode. We talk about PC culture on campuses, uh, the shutting down of freedom of speech and more conservative voices. And um, it's a very interesting um, article. He talks, uh, not article, uh, it's a very interesting podcast because he, Scott shares some of his uh, insight into things like Title IX, um, which is legislation in and around universities, uh, where young men can get kicked off of, um, kicked out of a university um, for uh, allegations, whether they are real or not, um, whether they've been proved or not. Uh, so he goes into detail about that. We talk about the legal drinking age and uh, college parties. Uh, and then we circle back around with with PC culture and talk about uh, how Scott sees the future of universities starting to unfold and how we can better prepare our, our uh, forthcoming generations on entering into the university life more uh, well-equipped. So this is a, a really interesting conversation. I hope you keep an open mind. And uh, for all the guys that are out there, don't forget to head on over to the Man Talks community and join the community there. We've got a great, great, great program uh, going on. And if you're interested in going deeper, definitely check out the Alliance. Uh, we have a strong group of men in there. So without any further delay, please welcome Mr. Scott Johnston. Thanks for having me. So, you know, I, it really interesting when I started to do some background research and the work that you do and, um, you know, in, into your book, Campus Land, and some of this conversation which is so prominent in the in the past few years around PC culture on campus and some of the restrictions that seem to be being imposed on on students uh, in on campus and kind of getting your perspective is something that I'm really interested in and, and I think a lot of our listeners are going to be interested in um, but before we dive in the sort of heart of what we're going to talk about I have to ask the question that all the guests have to go through which is tell us a story about a defining moment in your life that made you who you are today? Well, this I'm probably going to go back to about uh, when I was seven or eight years old. Uh, and in, uh, I was in a boys' school in, in New York City. And, and there came a moment in your life when you had to choose between the Mets and the Yankees. 
And uh, I even had one older brother who was a Mets fan and another who was a Yankees fan. Uh, and it was a, a big <laughs> decision in a seven or eight year old's life in New York City. You know, baseball was a bit more popular then. I chose the Yankees, which um, after all these years, that seems like, you know, jumping on the bandwagon and the easy thing to do. But it wasn't. This was the 19, late 1960s when the Yankees were close to the worst team in baseball. I had no conscious memory of the Yankees ever being a good team. The Mets were, you know, there was the 69 Mets and they were the darling of everyone. And virtually everyone in my class was a Mets fan. And um, I, I just instinctively wanted to be a contrarian. Um, and, you know, there was a great payoff when the Yankees became a good team. Uh, when I was, you know, it took a long time. It took about 10 years of being a diehard fan before they got into the playoffs. Um, so the payoff was wonderful, but I've always been kind of a contrarian and, uh, I, I think I could trace it back to, to that decision. Nice. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, you know, I think, uh, I love the idea of being the contrarian and, <laughs> and, and sharing opposing views. Uh, you know, I think that fits very well into what we're going to talk about here. And I would definitely say that being a Yankees fan has paid off for you in the long run. <laughs> Just sticking it out. I'm an Oilers fan, Edmonton Oilers fan, uh, which is NHL. But uh, I don't know. We went through some golden years back in the back in the 80s with Gretzky and really been toughing it out. So I'm hoping that somewhere in the future that's going to pay off again, just just being a loyal fan. Um, but maybe give the listeners a little bit of context to the book Campus Land and and a little bit of context, uh, maybe just like the backstory of why you wrote it in the first place, because it sounds like that's pretty interesting. Sure. I'm not a novelist, at least I wasn't until now. You know, I was I spent much of my career uh, in finance and then in the technology uh, startup area. And uh, it, it was never on my bucket list to write a novel. Um, as, but one day I was this is about three, three and a half years ago. I was at Yale attending a one day conference on the future of free speech. And 200 students showed up out of nowhere and physically tried to shut the conference down. Uh, and they were prevented from, from doing that by a lot of security. But as I walked out through kind of this phalanx of screaming kids, um, I, you know, I was thinking, what, what the hell is going on here? And why hasn't anyone used all this, this the, the craziness that college culture has become to write uh, a sort of scathing satiric novel a la you know Tom Wolfe and it didn't occur to me at the time to write it I, I Tony Morrison apparently said if there's a book you want to read and it hasn't been uh, written you should write it yourself I didn't know she she said that she died a couple of weeks ago that's when I found that out um, but easier said than done right so fa fast forward to my college reunion which was also at Yale and I was holding a door open for a young woman who was uh, an undergraduate. I think she was working in the reunions and she stopped dead in her tracks and she looked at me and she, she said, patriarchy. And I said, what? And she said, your behavior, it's patriarchal. I said, I thought I was just being polite. And we had this standoff for a minute or so where neither of us would, would go through the door first. Um, and I explained to her that my mother would be very upset if I went through the door first. And she said she didn't care. 
Um, and eventually um, her boredom outweighed her principles before it, the same thing happened to me. And she, she went through the door. But it was, it was effectively that moment that I decided, well, I, I guess I have to be the one who writes this. Very interesting. I mean, it, I love how the book was sort of birthed out of these, uh, you know, a few different experiences. Maybe can you give us a sense, you know, it sounds like the experience that you had at this event was quite contrasting to what you experienced when you went through uh, college at Yale. And so give the listeners maybe a little bit of context of, of the dichotomy that you saw between the, you know, the, the university setting that you went through and, and the one that you saw uh, a few years ago? Sure. Um, so when I went to Yale, it was a very liberal place. It's always been a very liberal place, but quite different from now. When I was there, you know, all the teachers were liberal and a lot of the students were liberal, but I also had a lot of conservative friends and we had very open uh, discussions and debates and, you know, li lively uh, talks in the dining hall and and the professors would um, engage you if you had a differing viewpoint, they wanted to hear it, and uh, there'd be great discussion in the classroom. It's not like that at all now, um, excuse me, it's not like that now at all. Um, I, there are professors who will absolutely not think twice about punishing you for viewpoints they don't like. Um, the conservative students have learned to basically hide. Uh, they know not to talk up in class, uh, they know they're uh, putting a target sign on their back if they write any uh, write an opinion piece for, say, the Yale Daily News. And I, I know people that's happened to personally. So it's a much darker place. And this actually ties in with uh, student views on speech. So in the 60s, the free speech movement started at Berkeley. And it was the liberal students of the time marching in Sproul Square. Uh, those same students now are 180 degrees to the opposite um, side on, on the issue. They, they actively want college administrators to create speech codes, to ban certain words. In fact, it's almost laughable. Uh, one, one school recently banned the word uh, manhole, among others. <laughs> Wait, <laughs> what? Manhole? <laughs> You're supposed to say street hole. <laughs> so they're literally, there are people in the administrations of, of every school now who sit around all day and they're, they make six figures, they sit around all day thinking these things up. And, and a lot of it is because pressure is being applied on them by students. And they also want no, no speakers to come to campus that have views that they disagree with. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they equate speech that they disagree with with violence, uh, which is an entirely new concept that is very foreign to me. Um, and it, this undermines the, the traditional college uh, role of the pursuit of truth and open inquiry and debate uh, and the free exchange of ideas. And, you know, you're supposed to be made a little uncomfortable in college, right? You're supposed to be exposed to new things. And it's a very dark turn that, that things have taken. So I'm, I'm curious, you know, you, you mentioned these, these sort of new roles within the institution of <laughs> infringing in on on you know more or less the sort of conservative viewpoint can you maybe just say a little bit more because i think one of the things that's challenging i think for a lot of viewers and and, and maybe even some of the listeners of, of this show is that they you know they see this kind of protest happening like I, I remember when are you familiar with jordan peterson or sam harris 
uh, I am familiar with Jordan Peterson. I don't think I know Sam Harris. Yeah, so I, I remember when both these guys, they've had some really great debates against each other and they have opposing views and they have different perspectives. But what's been, what was interesting is I remember when they sort of came on the scene and there was all of this media backlash against them speaking at universities or colleges. And the interesting part was that largely the, the coverage was all about how negative these individuals were and, and how detrimental they were and, you know, that they were like there were some equations sometimes to uh, to uh, white supremacists or, you know, they're just hyper misogynists. And the more that I dug into them, I was like, oh, these like, you know, one's a, a, from a Jewish upbringing who's now, you know, not practicing necessarily any religion. Uh, and then you have this other opposing force in Jordan Peterson, who's, um, you know, an advocate for a lot of things, but is, is very sort of forceful in his communication style. But what was interesting to me was how vicious and attacking the, the people were that were opposing them speaking on campus. And so I think the hard part for the, you know, the outside viewer is why, why is this happening? Why is there such a huge and, and sort of almost like violent revolt against free speech from conservative people within the university environment. And I would love for you to just give a little bit of context for that. Yeah, you know, that's, it, it's hard to say where this started. I've, I've, I've been asked that before. And you know, political correctness as a concept um, came into being roughly in the mid 80s. And I think you have um, a lot of kids who've been brought up uh, with hovering parents uh, who've been given trophies just for showing up their entire lives um, and they arrive on campus feeling very entitled uh, and a lot of and they're you know they're young so they're inclined to be liberal which has always been the case but they now have a they're now weaponized with social media and that's been what's really sort of poured gas on this so I'd be hard-pressed to say exactly how this started that's okay but social media has been gas on the fire and it has enabled relatively small numbers of people to have an outsized voice and influence. And what we see on campuses is that administrations will, will roll over almost instantaneously to the demands of five angry people on Twitter. And, and now you're seeing it in the, in the post-college world, too, with um, corporations rolling over to five people on Twitter almost within hours. Um, so... Uh, there's this outsized voice and college administrators are terrified of their own students. Uh, and at the same time, they don't really disagree with them very much. Um, they're kind of philosophically all on the same page. So a typical university today, the administrators are progressive. The, the pro professors are all progressive and the students are all progressive. And there's a handful of conservative students who hide. And that's not uh, an environment where very much of intellectual interest happens. When I was at Yale, there was a great debate we all went to between um, William F. Buckley and George McGovern. It was really well attended and, and with enthusiastic crowd, and, and it was really great. Now, I was told by a Harvard professor that if someone proposed at Harvard a debate on, uh, let's say the, the resolution is whether or not to build a wall, it couldn't happen. Because even if you found someone who was brave enough to take the affirmative that we should build a wall on our southern border, 
the debate would never come off because opposing forces would would shut it down before it even started. And if it even if it even got to the point where they were assembled in a hall somewhere, they would everyone would be shouted down. Um, this is a Harvard Harvard professor telling me this, and he was he was very sad about it. I mean, it's it's interesting because it sounds like the and you know I've seen this in a number of places. I remember Bill Bill Maher, uh, who's who's you know fairly democratic you know in nature left leaning um was talking about how political correctness is a cancer and he did this whole you know this whole speech on it and how it's really shutting down um debates and discourse in institutions where men and women people um whatever you know background they are come into an environment where they are meant to be opened up to different points of view and different perspectives and now those institutions are are becoming largely a one perspective party, I guess you could say. Uh, and and so I would love for you to just maybe give a little bit of insight into before we kind of talk about some of the pieces in the book and some of these other um, components that we want to talk about on, on campus. I would love for you to maybe just define in your your version what political correctness is and how you see that permeating out through the institutions and, and impacting uh, impacting institutions of today. Well, there are a lot of ways to define political correctness. Yeah. Before I get to that, I just want to say something about Bill Maher, who you brought up. He is a great example of a, a very interesting schism that exists generationally on the left. So he's an old-time liberal who, you know, was more on the sides of the, of the free speech crowd at Berkeley. Um, and, and that's why he's, even though he's a liberal, he's very much against what's happening on college campuses. So there's a, a, a big generational divide. I have a uh, a classmate who was a law professor at a big university down south, and he's a classic liberal. Uh, and he told me recently that one of his colleagues used the N-word in class, but as an example of something that was awful. But he said it out loud, and as a result, students complained. And uh, it wasn't even black students who complained. It was white students who complained. And his tenure is now threatened as a result of this. So my friend said he, he's just trying to lie low, um, even as a good liberal. He doesn't want to step on a landmine he can't see. Um, so my, my, and this sort of ties into my definition of political correctness, which is people taking offense on behalf of other people that aren't sufficiently enlightened to feel offended themselves. And this is essentially you know, white, um, fair, reasonably well-off liberals trying to raise the consciousness of people that they don't think are enlightened enough um, and making a stink on social media. But it also, you know, you have to, you can't talk about political correctness without getting into um, this very Marxist impulse to have speech controls, um, the impulse to rewrite history, um, tear down statues. Um, it's sort of the latest manifestation of the Marxist impulse that has always existed on college campuses. Can you can you say a little bit more about just the connection between those things, like the connection between PC uh, culture and the desire for like the statue tearing down and some of those other pieces is it can, to connect the dots for some of the people that are listening? Sure. Well, the feeling is that, well, I use the word feeling. So let's talk about that for a second because that's important to this discussion. Feelings are thought to be everything here. Feelings uh, are uh, sit above facts and reason and, and anything else. This trade, this goes back to the French philosophers like Descartes. Uh, and this is all in campus land. 
although I make it funny. None of this sounds funny, but campus land is funny. Descartes said you cannot, the only thing you know that is true is what you feel and perceive yourself. You can't know that anything else is true. Therefore, your feelings are the only thing that really that you can know exist. And this is how today's PC culture is, particularly on campus. Your feelings trump everything else. History has to yield to your feelings. And if a statue upsets you because it's a part of our history that was, by today's standards, uh, an immoral one, you, you must expunge it from your view. You must tear down the statue. You must rewrite the history books to uh, not mention it because, again, speech you don't like is violence. So there, think, there's a whole actually uh, chapter in my book called Don't Speak Your Truth. Uh, which keys off of a, a phrase you've probably heard a lot lately called always speak your truth. And what really bothers me about that is you're not entitled to your own truth. There's only one truth by the very definite definition of the word truth. There can only be one truth. So we don't have a proprietary uh, truth uh, unto ourselves. And um, so <laughs> I have some fun with this in my book. Um, I know none of this sounds funny, but I decided satire was a good weapon. I mean, I think I think for the the topic that you cover, it is absolutely imperative, and and it is funny. Like you know, the the parts of the book that I've read thus far are actually quite funny, and and <laughs> having I'm usually pretty good at just like okay, how good is this book going to be? I'll go through like the uh, uh, I'll go through like the comments and the reviews, and on uh, almost all the reviews talk about how enlightening it is in a, in a comical sense and i'm only a couple of chapters in admittedly i won't i won't uh won't lie here um but but so far it actually is quite funny and i think it, it brings a an ease to the the to the topic that, that actually is quite needed so sorry i'll, I'll let you can continue here well so an interesting point there a couple of online reviewers have said well, gee, I like satire, but this is just too over the top satire for me. Implying <laughs> that, you know, I just went too far exaggerating what's going on. In actuality, uh, I'm, while I made the plot up, uh, everything that happens in the book, all the incidents were drawn from real life mm. and nothing was exaggerated. In fact, some things I understated. So here, here's a pretty funny example. The villain in my book is the Dean of Diversity and Inclusion at Devon University, which is a made-up university, but think, think of an Ivy League school. Uh, and I know by making the villain the Dean of Diversity and Inclusion, I've put a kick me sign on, the, on my back, but that's okay. When I first wrote a draft, I had to decide how many people work for this woman? How many people are there in the diversity department at Devon University? So I, I went on Yale's website just to see if I could figure out how many they have. I, I call them diversocrats because it's an entire industrial complex now. And I couldn't find the answer. So I wrote 20. And then a little later on, you know, I was messing around with the draft. And I said, you know, maybe this is satire. I'm allowed to exaggerate a little. So let's make it 30. And I still couldn't find out at any of these schools what the real number was. T two weeks ago, as it happens, I discovered the right number at Yale. It's 150. Now, what do they do all day? <laughs> Those 150 people who are all highly paid, when they sit down at their desks in the morning, what do they do? I, I have no idea. Except to get everyone 
hating each other, as best I can tell. Very interesting. And so there's 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 a ton of people that are just trying to create. I mean, it, it's it's interesting, right? Because they their their job is to create diversity and inclusion, and the challenge seems to be that inclusion comes with caveats. And do, is that is that part of what you're talking about? And I, like, I I kind of want to shift a little bit of, to focus in on some of the stories that you tell in the book and in what you're trying to communicate. We know without going too far into detail, but can you share an example of one of the stories that's in the book that that kind of summarizes some of what you're talking about here around PC culture and the, and this almost like the absurdity of where things have gotten to? Sure, I think one of the things that that all the diversocrats create is a, a very siloed atmosphere where everyone goes in sort of their own, well, let's call it a uh, socioeconomic silo. Mm. Um, and I mean, as an example, the, the black students at Yale before freshman year starts go off and have a retreat and they all bond together and they show up in freshman, the first week of freshman year and they all have their own friend, built-in friends because they've been off bonding. And then they sit together in the dining hall. And, and now there's even a movement in a lot of students, sorry, in a lot of universities to have uh, Black-only housing. They call it affinity housing. And, I, and I, I'm, I point this out in the book. I think Martin Luther King would be horrified by that. This is like yeah. resegregation. But so along these, this, this concept of siloing, um, I have a, what I think is a very uh, great, funny scene in, in the book where there's a... Uh, a summit um, for all the progressive groups at Devon University where they have to decide what to do about this big issue that's just broken on campus. And the guy that organizes the summit, who's the head of the Progressive Student Alliance, which used to be the big liberal group on campus in the, back in the day, but now there's all the specialization. You have climate groups, you have LGBT, you have various ethnic groups, um, and He's upset because he's sort of losing his his power uh, as um, the top dog in the progressive hierarchy, and he wants to organize something across everybody, uh, you know, to have a big protest about this this thing that's going on. Um, and the meeting completely dissolves into chaos as they all argue about who which group is the most oppressed, uh, and they they end up uh, all shouting at each other and walking out and. Um, and, and that's kind of the state of affairs is all the progressive groups on campus uh, are control things and they're all jockeying for power uh, versus the others. And there really is money and power involved here. Yale, for instance, cut a $50 million check to um, the African-American groups uh, after some after some protests it just decided to solve the problem with money. So the conservative groups are nowhere to be seen in all this. It's really a hundred percent progressive bickering going on, which I, I find kind of interesting. I, I wanted to explore that a bit. And I, so I had some fun with that. I really did. Yeah. I was going to say like part of this bickering that you're talking about, it has pretty severe consequences. You know, I think we, we've seen quite a bit of that over the last little while, but um, was there, was there more that you wanted to add on to that? Yeah. I mean, something I really get into in a deep way is title nine, <clears throat> which you know, your listeners should understand what Title IX has become. Uh, it, it originally started back in the 70s as a way to equalize sports teams, uh, and it worked. Uh, and the participation of girls in college sports has increased dramatically, which is great. 
but it became something else during the Obama years when his education department sent out what's now called the Dear Colleague Letter, and it's become quite infamous. Um, it defines Title IX in quite a different way. Uh, it says that Title IX is about equal access, and there is a rape culture on college campuses. And there's a statistic they throw around, which is complete nonsense, that one in four college girls has been sexually assaulted. Um, but if you actually look and see what they count as sexual assault, it's it, it, some of the things are kind of silly. Like if you've been leered at, you've been assaulted. And I'm not trying to make light of actual sexual assault here uh, at all. Um, but it's important not to cry wolf. But anyway, the letter said, because of this rape culture that exists in college campuses, uh, high school girls might be intimidated from even applying to college in the first place. Therefore, you all colleges have to do something about this. And if you don't, we might yank federal funding from you. Now, you might say, who cares about federal funding? Uh, but the numbers are staggering. Yale uh, last year got over $700 million in federal funding, which is just a breathtaking number. So these schools did not want to risk any of that at all. And philosophically, they kind of agreed with where um, the Obama administration was going anyway. So they built the, this Title IX machinery out. This is starting in 08, whereby um, boys were essentially deprived of their due process rights. And there have been hundreds. It's not an exaggeration. It may be in the thousands by now, but I know it's I know there are 500 lawsuits currently working their way through courts against colleges from boys who have been thrown out on mere accusations. So this this can actually happen. And I, I, I have I know it sounds weird to say I have some fun with this in my novel. Um, I, I really do. Um, and it was an interesting challenge making all this funny. But I was trying to make a point. And sometimes humor makes it go down easier. So anyway, there are all these boys out there who uh, get accused by um, a girl of, of something. Of it, it can even be something way short of assault. I, I interviewed one boy who got suspended uh, from college for an entire semester uh, because he patted a girl on the butt who was a friend of his, uh, who didn't even accuse him of this until a year later. And there were no witnesses. He doesn't even remember it happening. Uh, and I'm not talking about a grope, I'm talking about a pat, uh, but based on the accusation, he was suspended and, uh, for a, a semester and almost thrown out and more serious accusations get you tossed out of campus, uh, within 24 hours. Um, there's even a group, uh, that's come into being that a support group is called face, which is families adv advocating for campus equity. And I've spoken to them and they, they are overwhelmed with the number of people that have come to them for help. It's a support group for boys who've been um, improperly accused and deprived of their due process rights. Uh, you're not allowed to face your accuser. You can't bring a lawyer into the proceedings. It, you're essentially just tossed. Um, and now professors have gotten ensnared in this. And one of the central plot points in campus land is a professor who's trying to get tenure who is falsely accused uh, of assault by a, uh, one of the students. And again, as I say that, it sounds totally unfunny, but <laughs> campus land is funny. Um, it's, so, one of those, it's one of those things where you're like, you're describing the plot and it's like, uh, it does sound funnier when you read it, I promise. <laughs> uh, anyway, it's important for people to know what's happened. And you might say, well, they're going to lose all these court cases. And they are. 
Yale's lost a couple big ones. Uh, Columbia lost a big lawsuit. Um, the, there was the famous mattress girl at Columbia who um, carried a mattress around for an entire year to protest uh, what she said was some, um, an incident of assault on her, but it was her own boyfriend uh, who was the person. And uh, he was completely exonerated. And Columbia, I, I believe, had to make a very large payment to him. But, you know, it's a million here and a million there. When you compare that to the 700 million that the government's threatening to withhold from you, um, you know, it's small beer, as Shakespeare would have said. <laughs> so part of the part of the challenge from what you're saying with Title IX is that there it removes due process. So if a, if a, a man on campus or, you know, a guy that's that's going to university Let's just stick with the Yale theme. Uh, he's going to university at Yale or some other college or university. He gets accused, rightly or not. There is no due process that's needed to to with to take him out of campus. So if someone accuses him of anything that has to do with sexual assault or sexual harassment, he's immediately removed. No due process. Uh, that's overwhelmingly the case. Uh, wow. And the reason this is a real shame, other than for you know for the boys, which is obvious is that um, actual cases of assault can get lost in the wash uh, when you have so many highly visible falsehoods. I mean, the, the big one everyone remembers is um, UVA, the girl, it was a cover story in, in Rolling Stone, um, a girl accused a fraternity of uh, basically assaulting her, you know, raping her, um, multiple boys, broken glass on the floor, all sorts of really lurid awful details. And, and the entire thing was fabricated. And the reporter wanted to believe the story so much that she did essentially zero fact checking. And I think she's been drummed out of the journalism business. And Rolling Stone had to pay a huge settlement. And colleges are paying all these settlements. So again, they don't really care. They, they have the current Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos, has issued a number of uh, essentially edicts that's, that have stated, you know, we want to back away from some of this stuff and, you know, maybe we won't withhold all this money from you. But the college has built this machinery out and it's a substantial structure that they've built in terms of the personnel and the money they've put behind it. And um, they kind of like it. It fits their view of the world and they're not disassembling the machine they've built. Interesting. So tell me a little bit about how you see drinking and the drinking age fitting into this. Because like, you know, I grew up uh, in central Canada in a small town outside of Edmonton, Alberta. And in Alberta, the drinking age is 18. And I, you know, really was kind of stunning to me when I remember, I remember as, a, as a kid, not as like as a little kid, but as sort of like a, you know, 18, 17, 18, 19 year old kid finding out that the legal age in the States everywhere was 21, that just seemed really strange to me because I can't imagine going through college, you know, at, at 19 or 20 and not being able to have a drink legally and having to do everything in your power to, to do it illegally because like your college kids, you're, you're going to party a little bit. Give me your take on the drinking age. How does it play into um, you know, some of the stuff that we see on campus with PC culture, uh, or does it have an impact? It has an enormous impact on college culture, and it's been um, almost uniformly a bad one. You know, there are only 12 countries in the entire world out of 190 that have a drinking age of 21. And the other ones are not 
the cool kids on the block. Uh, it's Equatorial Guinea and Oman and place, other places you've barely heard of. Uh, we're the only sort of major Western country that has a 21-year-old drinking age. Um, so when I was in college, it was 18. Uh, and the first day we were there, the first evening, the entire freshman class was invited to Bart Giamatti's house. He was the uh, the president of Yale at the time, who later became the commissioner of baseball. And as an aside, the actor Paul Giamatti's father, and who sadly died very young. But we, anyway, we, we all went there and um, there was a cocktail party on his lawn and an open bar. And no one really thought anything of it. It just seemed normal. And we were treated as adults because we were adults. The age went up in the 80s to combat drunk driving, which was a real problem. Um, but... And drunk driving has gone way down, 50%. So that's good. But the question is, are the two things related? And they're not. The drunk driving age, uh, sorry, the uh, drunk driving problem has, has dissipated because the penalties for drunk driving have gone way, way up. When, when I was uh, young, if you were pulled over by a policeman, he might say, you know, get home safe, son. Don't do it again. Um, and I'm not saying that was good. It wasn't. But today, you're spending at least a night in jail, and you're probably going to be out five to $10,000 in legal fees and fines. Uh, plus, you'll, you'll have a reputational stain that will follow you on the internet forever. Um, so the proof that the drinking age has nothing to do with any of this is that dr drunk driving has gone down amongst all age groups, not just 18 to 21-year-olds. Now, in colleges, what happened after the drinking age went up is everyone sort of went into their little silos. And again, this gets into this concept of siloing uh, and, and, and all these little tribes on campus. Because college-age kids did not stop drinking. I don't think anybody thinks that. What they did is they went into their little rabbit holes, fraternities and sororities and you know back rooms and, uh, and smaller groups. So colleges became much cliquier and balkanized. Uh, and I think it fed into uh, all this, this whole strain of, um, of, of, of separation that I've been sort of um, talking about. Uh, and that's a really unfortunate thing, uh, particularly if you think diversity is a good thing, because these little groups siloing themselves broke down along mostly demographic lines, uh, which if you're a college administrator, that's something you think is a bad thing. But one other thing happened that it was very bad which is that they stopped drinking beer, which was the, that was the beverage of choice for college kids since the first student was forced to read Proust. And now they drink vodka for the most part. And the reason you do that is because beer is heavy and bulky and hard to sneak around. Uh, so if you're breaking the rules, you, you, you don't want to get caught. So uh, vodka is colorless and odorless and you can slip it in a water bottle or with Gatorade and your nosy RA is no, none the wiser. Um, so now you have this concept of pre-gaming. Uh, you have drinking games with hard alcohol. Uh, and the, you ask any college administrator or president, the number of alcohol-related incidents has gone up, not down. I don't know anyone who ever went to the hospital because they drank too much beer. I think it's physically impossible. Uh, so what I advocate is a reduction in the drinking age um, from 21 to 18 for beer and wine or essentially low alcohol content beverages. Nice. Okay. So, I mean, it's, it's interesting to see how 
that ties into some of the culture that you see on campus and, and some of the partying. I know for uh, some of my friends um, that that have younger siblings that have gone through college in the last couple of years or university in the States, it's really interesting to hear the differences, you know, from a, even like a decade ago to right now and some of the challenges that they're, that they're facing on campus. I want to, I want to just come back around to, you know, this, this PC culture and not being able to have like a true form of freedom of speech on campus. And I would, I would love for you to just unpack, you know, how do you see this impacting uh, millennials and that generation to be able to go out into the workforce and, and and survive and thrive. I think they're at a great loss because their ability to reason through something uh, has been compromised because they're not asked to do it anymore. When you know reasoning through something involves looking at the pros and cons and and looking at both sides of an issue and maybe discussing things with people that you don't uh, with whom you don't agree. So, I mean, whenever I, I know when, and whenever I get in a debate with um, someone who's grown up in this sort of philosophical bubble where their views are never challenged, I'm going to beat them very easily because they've never had to debate anyone before. Mm-hmm. Um, and usually what happens is it will devolve into name calling very quickly. Usually you'll get called um, a sexist or a racist or uh, one of these other words that have lost all their meaning. So I think. You you have a, a generation of kids who who can't think properly, and they've also been coddled. Uh, and so when you get when you get to the real world and an actual, especially a, a private sector job, you're not going to be coddled. Um, you're you're probably going to hear things you don't want to hear or disagree with, and um, you, know, you can't be a spoiled little child in a bubble anymore. Mm. It's a rude awakening, and 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 you know we in the older generations sort of chuckle about we we trade stories about millennials in the in the workplace and, and what their expectations are yeah i mean it it is interesting because one of the side effects that i see of this sort of erosion of free freedom of speech especially with on within campuses is that the, the younger generation seems less equipped not because of their own doing you know i think that's the interesting thing it's not because of anything that they've necessarily done but they're, you know, some of their peers have started to build on, and it really seems to have an impact on their ability to to socialize. There's a lot more isolation, and there seems to be this like propensity towards echo chambers and loving the the idea of creating these little bubbles where everyone just agrees with what you say. Like I remember an interaction on Facebook one time with uh, this woman who disagreed with me, and uh, and and whatever I had posted. Uh, oh, I, I said I'm not. So, I'm not sorry for being a man. And I had this post about how you know I wasn't sorry for being born a certain gender or being born a certain race. And like I can't apologize for those things, and, and nor should I have to, nor should anyone have to. And and she had interviewed me on her show several months before, and she decided that because she disagreed with me, and because. Uh, she didn't want to get into a debate with me because, like you're saying, debates are, in some people's minds, seen as a form of, of violence. Uh, she decided to block me and remove my uh, remove my interview on her show, which I was totally fine with. Like, I don't think that my content's going to land for her audience if that's the case. But I was really shocked because it was the first time that I had seen this sort of like social justice warrior 
echo chamber in action. And I was shocked to see like the, the quickness of I'm not debating this because my perspective is right and yours is wrong. And instead of having any form of discourse, any form of intellectual understanding, uh, I'm just going to completely sever ties. And is that is that some of the environment that you're seeing pop up in campuses around North America? Well, the graduation speaker at Yale in in uh, June, uh, some poet no one's ever heard of, um, said, "You don't have to give people like climate deniers equal time. Don't think you have to you know publish their letters or listen to them or have them as speakers and and." Uh, you know, say what you want about climate science one way or the other, but there are plenty of smart people, including lots of scientists who aren't really sure about the connection between carbon and, and global warming. Um, they're, they're not, uh, the, the, the science is complicated and, and science is the very definition of science is, you know, you're supposed to, you're, you're supposed to think things through and use evidence and, and debate and science is never settled. Um, uh, there you had Yale's own graduation speaker saying, you don't need to listen to the other side. Um, and I've seen that, uh, in a lot of college newspapers, that, that concept, uh, you know, the, the Wes, uh, sorry, it was Wellesley, uh, in up in Massachusetts, they had a, um, an opinion piece by one of the students basically saying the same thing. It, what, the subject wasn't climate. It was just conservatives in general. We don't need to give them, um, equal time because they're wrong. So, since we know they're wrong and they're hateful, we don't have to listen to them, and you know we're not going to have them on our campus. So this, we're turning out a generation of um, kind of almost illiterate uh, people because the, the the education itself, other than even this part we've been talking about, which is open debate and inquiry, the curricula of these schools have been totally compromised. And I have a friend whose son just graduated from Michigan. He started out as an English major and he couldn't do it anymore. He had to change to a hard science because you couldn't, if you're writing a paper about Shakespeare, for instance, you had to analyze Shakespeare through the contemporary lens of gender politics and, and, and write about how Shakespeare was sexist and racist and everything else. And that was the only thing that professors would accept. Um, the entire English department had been, had been compromised. Um, and, and they rarely will even look at Shakespeare anymore because there's this trend of, towards decolonizing English curricula, which basically means no authors of um, who are white and male. And well, a lot of the world's great literature has come from white male people, and it's just the way it happened. Um, uh, so the entire educational establishment has been so thoroughly corrupted. I don't know if it can be saved. I really, I really have my doubts. Hmm. I mean, it's, it's interesting, right? Because I think what I hear you saying is that there's sort of like an attempt at deconstructing what has transpired in our history in some ways. I'm, I'm curious how you see some, some of these pieces unfolding. Like if, if there was a way home, if there was a way back to a more open form of conversation and discourse because i think uh, what what i've observed and this doesn't have to be right for everyone but what i have observed is that the more the more that that we go down this path the more that one side seems to feel and i think we'll just sort of like label it because it's already pretty apparent the more that the sort of extremists on the left 
and uh, go down this path of uh, really infringing on other people's ability, specifically the rights ability to voice their opinions, their perspectives, uh, you know, their ideas, their ideals, their theologies, et cetera. The more that the right sort of like rises up in this very, uh, yeah, they just, they just rise up, right? And it's 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 sometimes unhealthy, it's sometimes violent, it sometimes doesn't make sense, but they're meeting that force with force. And it leaves people with not a lot of choices, but to sort of fight back. And it's interesting to me because I, you know, as I watch this, and I'd be in, interested in getting your opinion on this, I don't think it's going to get better uh, before it gets a hell of a lot worse on college campuses. And I'm curious to, to get your perspective on that. Uh, I, I agree. Uh, the fighting back is mostly taking the form of alums not writing checks anymore. Mm. Uh, and, you know, the social justice warriors graduate and they don't write checks. Um, so colleges are going to see their funding dry up. And, you know, they don't have a God-given reason. or It's not a law that they exist. I think you're going to see a lot of parents saying, you know, who have high school age kids saying, is there really value in my spending a quarter of a million dollars to put my kid through college? Um, and increasingly, the answer is no. If, you know, to spend four years taking oppression studies and, and partying, um, that's, that's worth a quarter million dollars. You probably are way better off going into the workforce and getting real world experience for four years and starting to climb the ladder. Uh, and more and more people realizing that. Plus, there are alternatives, right? You can get online degrees now. That was something that didn't used to exist. So I think you're going to see a wave of college bankruptcies in the next 10 to 15 years. I think a great business opportunity is converting bankrupt colleges into um, senior living facilities. <laughs> that, was, that was a good little, good little drop there. <laughs> um, so I am pretty bearish on it. I I do uh, have a friend who's working on a business model that he's going to be pitching to Uber, some Uber wealthy people on creating an entirely new university from scratch, um, which you know hasn't happened a lot lately. Um, and it would have a big price tag. It would be something like two to $3 billion. But the notion is you'd be sort of back to the basics. You'd have no oppression studies. Um, you'd have administrations that are probably one quarter the size of um, the average university administration today, um, you know, you, you cut out all the diversocrats and the armies of lawyers and everything else. And the tuition would, instead of being, you know, 70, $75,000 might be more like 40. Uh, and the academic standards would be high. And, you know, he thinks this is an achievable goal. He's, he's, um, planning on going out and trying to raise money to do it. I mean, it is, it is interesting to see how a lot of, uh, a lot of the the movement that we've seen happening around colleges and universities are creating other forms of educational streams. Like I've seen, I've I've heard of a lot of people starting to open up different types of schools and you know thinking about different types of colleges and universities that they can create because there seems to be such a a wild environment and culture on campus today, and, and it, it seems to be just like this melting pot. Um, I'm curious just to get one last piece before we sort of wrap things up here of, of where you've really seen this, um, this PC culture sort of go awry and, and cause havoc for, for individuals and, and groups. I think you've given some really good examples here, um, but I'm wondering if you just provide another one. 
where it causes havoc with individuals? Yeah, with individuals or or with groups. Well, I, you know, there are different examples, but I think the for the boys who get tossed out of school on the mere basis of an accusation, and by the way, Title IX now, this is kind of funny, I forgot to mention this, Title IX now is a verb. So in other words, a girl might say, you better not dump me or I'll Title IX your butt. So it's they know it's been weaponized. So for the for boys like that, those are obvious victims of this culture. But I think everyone going through college is is a victim. Um, they're not being taught how to think. Uh, they're being coddled and protected, and um, we're we're raising a generation of complete wussies. Mm. To be honest, how do how do you think that? you know, parents can start to have these conversations because, you know, I think people that are going into university, they're entering in at, at such a, you know, such an interesting time. So how can parents best equip their kids to enter into these environments where, you know, discourse and and these more conflict-based conversations are not welcome anymore? Um, what What can we do? Well, I know that conservative parents who have conservative uh, kids are, are all a hundred percent of them are telling their kids uh, lie low because um, yeah, they, they don't want their kids to get bad grades or get tossed from school or whatever. So they're, they're telling them to lie low, keep their opinions to themselves. I can tell you the parents of boys are telling them, well, honestly, they don't even know what to tell them because you can be unbelievably careful. But if, if the mere, if a mere accusation can get you thrown out of school, how do you prepare yourself for that? No one knows. I mean, the the rules are constantly evolving. And, you know, colleges now, some of them have this concept of um, trying to remember what it's called. Um, You have to give consent. The girl, not the guy, the girl has to give consent at every stage of the process in a, shall we say, seduction, Um, which sounds like the most awkward, uh, unromantic thing I've ever heard. (laughs) Um, But with rules like that that are being written as we speak, you know, how do you prepare any kid for that? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's, it's interesting, right? Like did the, the latest Dave Chappelle special just launched on Netflix not too long ago. And I think it's, I think it's titled sticks and stones and the whole thing. I mean, he, he goes after like the Michael, Michael Jackson accusers and the me too movement and the cancel culture and the PC culture on campus and like he really does a number and he kind of goes out of his way to say like we've gone too far and not only has not only has this gone too far but it's not even it at the benefit of the people that it's saying it's supposed to be for and i think it's it's really like it's a really interesting time when you have comedians like him that kind of poke fun at everyone you know, he's usually pretty universal at poking fun at sort of all sides of the fence. But here you have you have him sort of saying like this is this is now ridiculous and, and, and has gone too far. And so so if anyone's wanting to to kind of dig a little bit deeper, definitely check that out. Oh, um, I, I saw it. It was fabulous. Yeah. What did you what were your what are your thoughts on that? I you know, I didn't agree with everything he said. Yeah. I loved his courage for uh, saying everything he did say. Um, you know, a lot of comedians will not play college campuses anymore because, you know, you're supposed to be a little edgy and you're supposed to cross lines as a comedian and you can't do that on college campuses. If you, you've got to like conform to the orthodoxy or someone's going to shout you down and, and maybe even, you know, chase you off campus. 
Uh, I was asked by um, a number of people who read my book before it was published. They said, aren't you worried you're going to anger some people or offend some people? Like, and my reaction was, if I don't offend some people, I really haven't done a very good job with this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like my organization offends people just by its name. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the club. But, you know, I think it's it's interesting. Like I just heard an interview with Dr. Cornell, Cornell West, who is phenomenal. Uh, and he was talking about how, you know, comedians are sort of at the forefront of of you know intellectual discourse from a, a culture perspective within a within a nation and he was kind of saying this you know that tradition goes all the way back to the days of plato and aristotle that a lot of the philosophical ideas that we have have, have sort of been curated and, and put together by comedians first and foremost who are pointing out the absurdities of our culture and we can tell that you know our our culture is in a, a little bit of danger. This, these are his words, not mine. He, you know, he was saying that we're in a little bit of danger when we are when there's parts of the culture actively trying to shut down comedians and saying that they are no longer allowed to poke fun of or make fun of or or create jokes out of certain groups of people because that's the whole point of comedy is, is to allow us to find a space where where there's nothing off limits. And it was, it was a really interesting thought. And I think, you know, it ties into your book being this, you know, satirical um, fiction that is really sort of pointing out some of these pieces. Um, so any, any last words that you just want to leave the listener with? Because I know this is a huge conversation around PC culture and universities and Title IX and drinking age. And, you know, we, we hit on some big things. So anything that you just want to leave them with? You know, the, the only form of uh, critique that was generally accepted in the old, old Soviet Union was uh, laughter. It was comedy um, and jokes. So you could make a joke about how ineffectual the Soviet government was, but you, you couldn't say it in a serious way. But it was, in a joke, you get away with it. And now we're moving in a direction where jokes aren't even letting you get away with it here. And just one thing about Cornell West, um, he is an old-time liberal, but... Uh, he's a professor at Princeton, a staunch free speech advocate, and he's teamed up with a conservative professor at Princeton named Robbie George, and they've made a wonderful team that's trying to push back against some of this stuff. But I, honestly, I fe feel that they and, and I, with Campus Land, are, are fighting a bit of a rear guard action. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's <laughs> you have some work ahead of you, my friend. <laughs> um, well, listen, Scott, this was phenomenal. Thank you so much for doing the work that you're doing. Thank you for being on the show and and uh, and connecting with me today and, and the listeners. And uh, for everyone that's out there listening to this episode, definitely go check out Campus Land. It is is worth the read. Uh, it's quite funny and it's a, it's a, uh, something good for you to have on the table. So t check that out and check out some more Scott's work. Uh, and until next week, this is Connor Beaton signing off. Mm -hmm.